Hello. Oh, it is recording. I see the little figure. Okay, great. I will do my little spiel and then I'll introduce you. Nice. Okay, here I go. Hi, everyone. I'm Sue from the Salveson Mindrum Research Centre at the University of Edinburgh, and we're recording another episode of our psychological podcast, trying to make a little evidence-based contribution to the conversations we're all having about child and adolescent well-being and development and learning at the moment. And today I am talking to Seb Gage from City University of London, who is going to talk to me about a paper. I'm going to read out the title of the paper, It is called Eye Tracking Reveals Absent Repetition Learning Across the Autism Spectrum, Evidence from a Passive Viewing Task. So um, I love eye tracking studies in autism. I think they're really fascinating. So I'm really excited to talk about this. Hi, Seb. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much for coming. Um, So uh, why don't you start by telling me what you kind of discovered in this piece of research? Okay, so basically what we found is that Uh, Autistic adults, as well as children with varying levels of intellectual impairments and learning difficulties, have um, difficulties anticipating repeating patterns of events in the environment. And the best way to sort of maybe describe it is uh, with an analogy to the whack-a-mole game, which we all know. And if you imagine sort of playing this game and the mole appears in a repeated sequence of uh, locations, you'll get quicker and quicker at whacking it, basically. And we sort of emulated this type of uh, exercise in an eye-tracking task where people simply watched a rabbit appearing in repeating sequences of locations. Uh, And we saw that typically developing adults and children get quicker at spotting where the rabbit is about to come up, um, whereas autistic children and adults didn't. Great. Um, So um, that's really interesting. We'll dig into the results a little bit more later on. But first of all, maybe just tell me, like, what made you um, decide to examine this in in, um, a kind of autistic sample? You know, was there suggestion already that this might be something that would be difficult for autistic people? Well, um, so yes and no. The main reason why we were interested in this is because uh, these sorts of repetition learning processes are known to be very important um, for early language acquisition. So, for example, uh, when we learn new vocabulary or pick up on the patterns of grammar, for example, essentially what we're doing is picking up on repeating patterns in in sounds and, uh, and patterns of words, for example. Um, And there is already quite a lot of work that links repetition learning to early word learning, for example. Um, And we know that autism is often characterized by uh, language difficulties, uh, but we actually don't yet know a lot about why that's the case. And so what we wanted to test, essentially, was to see whether difficulties with um, even nonverbal repetition learning might be related to uh, sort of individual differences in language skills uh, to essentially see whether that might be a contributing factor to to the individual differences in language that we see. Mm. And so were you able, so you mentioned at the beginning, I think that you had quite a kind of varied sample in terms of like age and IQ and and presumably language ability as well. Yeah, so, that, so basically we, we, we ran the experiment essentially twice. First with a group of adults who, uh, who didn't have language impairments. Uh, and the, the main purpose of that was to sort of really fine-tune the paradigm, make sure that it generally works, that we could demonstrate people starting to anticipate where the rabbit would appear, for example. Um, 
And to our surprise, uh, adults with autism showed a sort of a, a relative difficulty in anticipating where the rabbit would, would come up. Um, and we were surprised by that because generally in the literature, there's a suggestion that this form of implicit learning uh, is not a source of difficulty for individuals with autism. Um, and then in the second study, we recruited a relatively large sample of autistic children and non-autistic children. Um, and we were primarily interested in recruiting those who tend to be underrepresented in the literature. So those with the most significant levels of language impairment, intellectual difficulties, maybe additional difficulties that might often prevent them from taking part in research or participating in school activities and things like that. Um, and so I think we had, uh, I can't remember, over 70 children or something like that with, with a really quite heterogeneous profile. Um, and again, just as with the adults, we found that uh, typically developing children uh, or a good majority of them started anticipating where the rabbit would appear by looking at the relevant locations pretty quickly. Um, and autistic children tended to do this fairly rarely. And it wasn't, uh, it wasn't actually that much related to their language profile. So it was, it was a sort of a more um, sort of binary either children did or didn't anticipate, and the vast majority of autistic children didn't anticipate um, across all of the trials. That's so interesting. So, so it's essentially more of a universal um, difference associated with autism than you anticipated, right? You thought it would be more related to language level, more of an individual yes. difference. Yeah, kind of exactly. What we, were, um, what we were hoping was to, to have a task that would demonstrate individual differences in, in the rate at which children would start anticipating, but that it was more a case of children either sort of got to that stage of anticipating or they didn't. Um, and that was the case for both groups of children, typically developing in autistic children, um, but much more so in, in the autistic children that we saw the sort of abstinence. So um, let's talk a little bit more about the task, I think, just to um, make sure I've understood it right. So, so you've got this um, rabbit popping up, right? Do the children have to, um, you know, sort of, tell you where they think it's going to come next or or is it more well the title says it's a it's a passive viewing task right so are you just inferring from where they look is that right that's it yeah so the so the aim was uh to keep the task very short and as engaging as possible so the task essentially was a uh, was a short video that lasted around about four to five minutes uh, that had some music playing as it was sort of unfolding and children were simply told or asked to uh, watch out for the bunny. That was the only instruction that they were given. Um, and we, we made sure that children understood by sort of giving them uh, some fairly guided instructions in terms of like saying, here's the bunny, let's have a look at it. And so sort of gradually introducing them to the task. Um, and we, we also know that they understood the task in that sense because we can see or we could see that they were looking at the rabbit when it appeared on the screen. Um, but what we didn't see is that they anticipated where it would appear um, uh, sort of ahead in, ahead in time in the sequence. Yeah. Okay. So the key thing is to, is to implicitly learn this pattern so that you're looking before the bunny has popped up in the right place. Yeah. Um, and do you think people were, conscious that they were detecting a pattern and that 
you know, those people who who did kind of start to predict where the bunny, bunny was going to appear. Do you think they knew? So this is one of the things we, we sort of discuss in the discussion section in the paper, because, um, again, to some extent, it's, it's, it's sort of surprising to find autistic children having difficulties with this kind of task, because in other similar ta- types of tasks that require behavior, such as pressing a repeated sequence of buttons, for example, uh, we don't find these sorts of differences. Um, and one of the differences to these types of previous experiments is sort of the explicit nature of it. So in this task, in our task, there was no explicit requirement to do anything as such. And we thought that that was um, actually useful in relation to sort of mimicking the types of patterns we have to pick up in the environment in terms of language, because we do that passively just by listening and and basically experiencing the world around us. Um, And so in our paper, when we first ran the task with adults, we did actually ask them at the end whether or not they noticed any pattern. And we actually asked them also to reproduce uh, or try and reproduce a pattern, even if they hadn't noticed one. Um, and we did find that the people who reported more of an awareness were also the ones that tended to anticipate more uh, the rabbit. In the study with children, we couldn't really do that because the, the sort of the language skills and general sort of ability levels of the children made it difficult to probe explicit awareness in that sort of sense. Um, and so one possibility is, is that, that the task isn't actually as much of an implicit task as we think it is, and that explicit awareness does come in for those children who are actually picking up on the pattern. Um, and that's actually something that we are, we'd like to explore sometime in the future because there's ways in which you can manipulate the task to make it either more or uh, more or less difficult to, to sort of acquire more explicit awareness of what's going on. Mm-hmm. I think that's such an interesting distinction more broadly in the kind of autism research literature as well between sort of what people do spontaneously in the absence of particular directions versus what they are capable of doing if given specific instructions to do something you know so we do see this consistently that differences between autistic and non-autistic people narrow or disappear in more directed and instructed tasks you know so there's there's fewer capability differences but in terms of what autistic people are naturally spontaneously doing when given fairly minimal direction within a task you know that's when you see the really big differences and as you say of course in the real world no one is explicitly telling you to pay attention to grammatical patterns in language or um or or, or any number of other kind of behavioral patterns you know you you are just expected to kind of tune in and and get on with it spontaneously right as a child and so if that's not what you're most tuned into you're tuned into something else in the environment that's more interesting and motivating for you you know then then that will lead to these big differences right does that does that make sense Absolutely, yeah. And in fact, Dermot Bowler sort of formulated this in, in what he calls the task support hypothesis, which gets exactly to that uh, in the sense that we sometimes see differences between autistic and non-autistic uh, people that disappear when you start introducing certain scaffolds uh, to sort of make task uh, requirements, for example, more explicit or something like that. Mm-hmm. I think it's also 
useful in the sense that you know that pattern could potentially translate into some useful strategies of supporting children. So in, in relation to language learning, for example, if it's important that we make patterns in the environment more explicit in order to scaffold um, language acquisition, that's something that's, you know, is not impossible to try and achieve. And in fact, in terms of just in homeschooling time, we've learned a lot about phonics education and things like that with my five-year-old. So there's a lot of scaffolding going on already. And, um, and I, I could imagine ways in which you could change the scaffolds that are provided to, to more specifically target types of difficulties autistic children might have. Yeah, that's so interesting. We've, we've been working a bit on looking at um, bilingual autistic people, right? Autistic children who are raised in bilingual households and bilingual and multilingual autistic adults. And one of the things I think is really interesting about that is the way that learning multiple languages forces a more explicit recognition of things like grammar and, you know, patterns in the language than, than if you're just exposed to one language. Um, which is, I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but you're right. Like it, it creates more of a sort of task focused context for language learning if there's more than one language around in your environment yeah um so just in terms of what we can learn from this I suppose I'm really interested in the fact that you know what you found was more universal among autistic people than you anticipated so do you think this kind of implicit pattern learning difficulty might be relevant to some other differences between autistic and non-autistic people? Um, you know, do you think it plays a role more kind of broadly? Um, I guess, I mean, I'm sure you're going to say that you'd need more data, but <laughs> what's your um, hunch? I think my hunch is that it probably does because, as you said earlier, so much of what we learn as we grow up is through passive observation, often guided a lot by our parents and people that look after us and things like that. But even, you know, if you think about social interactions and the patterns that exist in that context, they're, they're very um, unpredictable in some sense, but they're also very regular in other sense to an extent that we, we start to learn to anticipate other people, for example, that we know well compared to people that we know less well and things like that. Um, and if there is a, a sort of a, a more domain general difficulty in acquiring knowledge and skills through passive observation and learning, it could have implications for, for, for other aspects as well. And in fact, in our, um, in our paper, although we didn't find uh, an association between the sort of the repetition learning and indices of language function, we did find an association between um, anticipation learning and uh, I think we had used the SCQ as an index of uh, social communication difficulties. Um, we looked at that in response to a suggestion from a reviewer. So thank you to whoever, whoever reviewed this paper and suggested that. It was very useful. Um, and so, so yeah, so, so there, there's a suggestion there already that, that this sort of repetition learning difficulty might be related to to wider aspects of, of what characterizes autism. Yeah. And I and I guess the other thing that occurs to me is, is a possible link to desire for kind of routines and predictability in the environment, right? So if there are patterns in the environment, but they're um, subtle or 
a bit kind of um sugarly that's a I think that's a Scottish word they're a bit um loose you know they're not they're not super kind of tight patterns um and so they don't you know they don't emerge as patterns to autistic kids for example you can imagine how you know that would make you feel that the environment was very unpredictable and you might impose a more explicit pattern on it because the implicit patterns that are there are are not you know relevant to your priorities or not 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 offering enough structure for you right so there could be a a link there do you think yeah i think so it could well be the sort of the flip side of that coin in a sense and if you have a difficulty in picking things up uh passively in that way that you're trying to create that more explicitly in some sense um yeah, yeah that's a very interesting yeah very interesting idea so interesting it makes me want to go and ask some autistic people about their experience of patterns yeah um, yeah so um we should draw to a close but before we do um i think probably there will be some early career researchers and students who are listening and so i wondered if you had any um you know wise old owl type guidance for them any thoughts that you might like to have um uh been exposed to earlier in your career i don't know something like that yeah i think i think one of the things that um that i learned from doing this and that i hope will sort of inspire other people to do more of it is to is to think of ways in which we can learn more about uh, those people on the autism spectrum who have the most significant sort of needs and difficulties in terms of language skills, intellectual impairments, and, and things like that, because they are hugely underrepresented. Um, and I'm sure you're aware of this paper that came out a couple of years ago, which basically showed that only about 2% of participants in autism studies are described as minimally verbal, uh, even though we know that that makes up around about 30% of the actual autistic population. And so I think we, we've got to do more to, to sort of find out important things about this underrepresented group. Um, and, and, and what I've learned from this is that it is possible. It's sometimes seen as this thing that's very difficult in terms of, you know, how do you recruit participants and how do you sort of create tasks that are engaging enough and that give meaningful results. And um, it isn't straightforward, but it can be done. And so, uh, and, and it is actually a lot of fun creating a whack-a-mole type of experiment is not, uh, yeah, not the worst kind of experiment to put together. Um, so that would be one one of my most important sort of pieces of wisdom to pass on, if, if we can see it as that. I think it's great. and No, it's definitely a piece of wisdom. And I think, you know, sometimes... Um, particularly with the focus quite rightly at the moment on things like kind of reproducibility and rigor in research, we can think that the only way to make a valuable contribution is by having more participants, you know, bigger sample sizes, more power and so on. And, and of course, that's important. But, but actually, you know, even in a very saturated literature like autism research, where there's what, like, I don't know, like 10 new papers coming out every week. There, there's this uncharted territory. There are these things that we do not understand well enough and that we haven't looked at deeply enough. And so, you know, I think by um, choosing to kind of, you know, go into those kind of challenging areas of, you know, yeah, how can I design an experiment that's going to be accessible to people with a learning disability or, you know, whatever, then, um, 
you, you can really make a unique contribution, even if you don't have, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds and, you know, all those yes. kinds of resources. Yeah. And I think it is true also that sometimes, especially in the, the sort of the cognitive literature in autism, it's sometimes been a little bit too inward looking, sort of, you know, looking at issues that um, have come to our attention by, you know, running experiments with individuals with autism and, and things like that. But sometimes we forget that there's a huge literature outside of the autism field that can actually inform us on, on what we should be asking and how we should be asking questions and things like that. And, um, and, and that's, that's, yeah, I think it's something else that I've learned. It's just read something other than papers on autism in order to take inspiration of what kinds of questions we should be asking and how we should be maybe thinking about things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Problem is, there's um, too much to read. <laughs> Possibly keep, keep up with the literature. Yeah, it's incredibly difficult, isn't it? But yes, we. I did a chapter a little while ago um, where we were looking at technology research, and we looked at three groups: autism and ADHD, and developmental language disorder. And what was so interesting was the way that there was research happening happening on technology with each of those groups but they were asking such different questions each time and and actually you could do so much just saying here's a question that's been asked with with kids with ADHD let's try that one with autism and then let's try this autism question with kids with absolutely language disorder and so on I mean it's yeah yeah, yeah okay. absolutely well, thank you so much for your time, Seb, and double thank you because actually, listeners, this is our second recording because the first one <laughs> didn't record properly. So I'm particularly grateful to Seb. Um, for anyone who's listening, you'll be able to find out more about this work by following the links in the podcast description in your app, wherever you're listening, and also on our Buzzsprout feed. And um, for now, just thank you so much, Seb. Have a great rest of your day. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, we did it. I thought that went quite smoothly. <laughs>